I've always loved this play, and I find it both strange and beautiful and very moving, as well as highly intelligent. It's a play that forces you to think about the difference between who somebody is and the role they're playing, what there is of ourselves that we can salvage, if anything, from the moment of history in which we're trapped. This is one of the most beautiful plays about everyday politics that's ever been written. It's extraordinarily moving, extraordinarily artificial, and yet immediately recognisable to anybody who has inhabited or been compelled to work with any kind of institutional power structure. It's a play about what's left of somebody when their role is taken away from them. Living as I do in England, I've suffered as a child from the notion that Shakespeare's history plays were part of our great national heritage and were really costume drama, pageants about glorious, obscure medieval kings that we all ought to care about. Richard II's not like that at all. It's deliberately vague about a lot of the history that really happened. It's much more interested in things that can be applied to any political situation. It's an absolutely brilliant, close-focus depiction of how power changes hands within an institution, voluntarily and not. My name is Michael Dobson. I'm the director of the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-upon-Avon. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today, we're discussing Richard II with Professor Dobson. Having written four plays about the reigns of medieval English kings in the early 1590s, Shakespeare returned to the history play genre around 1595 with Richard II, the story of a king who ruled in the late 14th century. In the play, Richard believes that his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, is growing politically ambitious and banishes him from England. But Henry returns stronger than ever, strong enough to depose Richard and take the throne himself. What's particularly fascinating about Shakespeare's version of these events is how Richard seems also to depose himself, almost eagerly embracing the role of tragic hero. At the middle of Richard II, there's one fantastically good part for an actor, Richard himself, who is highly theatrical, who stages himself, and who speaks his thoughts with extraordinary eloquence and who over the course of the play moves from making great monologues to making a great soliloquy. It's a general rule in Shakespeare that once somebody has gone into soliloquy, they've got big problems and it may be very difficult for them to come back from there if they ever do. Richard's ambition seems to be to get into soliloquy, which he finally does when he's in solitary confinement and about to be killed. He wants to be a tragic character. The play opens with a scene of royal ceremony, the formal language and rituals of which coincide with underlying aggression and uncertainty. Two men come before King Richard to accuse each other of high treason. One is Richard's cousin Henry, Duke of Hereford, often called Bolingbroke. The other is Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk. Henry's most serious charge against Mowbray is that he arranged the murder of King Richard's uncle, Thomas of Woodstock, the Duke of Gloucester. But in fact, Gloucester's death might have been instigated by someone much more powerful than Mowbray. What we have at the beginning of this play is a young king and his cousins 
and the stories of his uncles. One of them's John of Gaunt, the father of Bolingbroke. One of them is the Duke of York, the father of O'Merle. But another of them, Thomas of Woodstock, has apparently just been murdered. And the more we hear about the duel that Richard is trying to suppress and hush up between Bolingbroke and Mowbray, the more it appears that Mowbray was actually employed by Richard to at very least help kill um, his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester. Uh, so there's already this background of intrigue and trouble within the family the minute we come into the play. Bolingbroke challenges Mowbray to a trial by combat, and Mowbray accepts. Richard commands them to forget, forgive, but they refuse to obey him. They feel that honour compels them to combat. Richard finally says, We were not born to sue but command, which since we cannot do to make you friends, be ready as your lives shall answer it seeming first to assert his power, but ultimately giving in to the determined nobles. Privately, Bolingbroke's father, John of Gaunt, reveals that he knew of Richard's involvement in Gloucester's death, but he feels he can't take any action against Richard. God's substitute, his deputy anointed in his sight, hath caused his death. I may never lift an angry arm against his minister." Gaunt sees monarchy as ordained by God, with the king acting as God's representative on earth. Richard eloquently articulates this view, but the play also questions it. In the Middle Ages, there was indeed a strong sense that kings were appointed by God, and therefore treason against the king was treason against God, what we're looking at as a debate about the nature of political authority. And that is a debate based on things that were happening in the reign of Richard II and also in the reign of Elizabeth I, Shakespeare's own time. As always in Shakespeare, if everybody agreed, you wouldn't have a story. You wouldn't have a play. The next scene takes us to Bolingbroke and Mowbray's trial by combat. They each declare the justice of their cause and prepare to fight. But just as the fight begins, Richard abruptly calls it to a halt. He banishes Mowbray from England for life and banishes Bolingbroke for ten years. Though, in a further display of his absolute power, he then shortens that sentence to six years. While Gaunt grieves at his son's exile, Bolingbroke leaves England. Richard speaks with his confidants, Bushy, Bagot, Green and O'Merle, about a rebellion in Ireland. Richard needs money to control his Irish territories but keeping up his lavish court has drained his funds. Richard spies a new source of income when he hears that Gaunt is ill. He goes to see his uncle, who fiercely criticises him. Gaunt chastises Richard for surrounding himself with flatterers, leasing out his land to raise cash and spilling his own uncle's blood. Richard has so injured his kingdom and his reputation, Gaunt tells him, that... Thou art possessed now to depose thyself. Richard is outraged at his uncle's words. Gaunt now dies and Richard seizes all his property. The act scandalises the English nobles. Richard's uncle, the Duke of York, has never stood up to Richard before. But now he strongly protests. Gaunt's property, by right of succession, belongs to Gaunt's son, Bolingbroke. 
Take Henry's rights away, let not tomorrow then ensue today. Be not thyself, for how art thou a king, but by fair sequence and succession? York demands. It's a huge Rubicon for Richard to cross when he confiscates hereditary property. The whole idea of succession is key in this. As York says, look, you're only king because you inherited the part. If you don't let your subjects inherit, then you're, you're undermining the entire system and you will be one of the casualties, as indeed turns out to be the case. York's fears are well-founded. The Lords Northumberland, Willoughby and Ross discuss how Richard is basely led by flatterers, how he has lost the hearts of the people with his taxes, and now he has robbed the banished Bolingbroke. Most degenerate king! This latest outrage prompts them to take action. Bolingbroke, they've heard, is sailing back to England with several English lords and an army. Northumberland and the others decide to join him. News of Bolingbroke's return reaches Green, Bagot, Bushy and the Queen while Richard is away in Ireland. York rules in Richard's absence, but York doesn't have enough power to beat back Bolingbroke and he's almost uncertain whether he should. Both Richard and Bolingbroke are my kinsmen, he says. One is my sovereign, whom both my oath and duty bids defend. T'other again is my kinsman, whom the king hath wronged, whom conscience and my kindred bids to right. When York meets with Bolingbroke and his confederates, he does condemn them for gross rebellion and detested treason. But Northumberland tells him, The noble duke has sworn his coming is but for his own. Bolingbroke swears that he only returned from exile to claim his title and the lands that Richard unjustly seized, not to overthrow Richard himself. York gives way to Bolingbroke, chiefly because he does not have the military strength to oppose him. Bolingbroke then arrests Bushy and Green and executes them. Richard now returns to England. His cousin O'Merle and the Bishop of Carlisle urge him to take action against Bolingbroke. But Richard exudes confidence in his inherent kingly power. In a key image of the play, he compares himself to the sun when... This traitor Bolingbroke shall see us rising in our throne, the east. His treasons will sit blushing in his face and tremble at his sin. Kings are not made and unmade by human politics, he declares. They are divinely ordained and made invulnerable by God. Not all the water in the rough, rude sea can wash the balm off from an anointed king. The breath of worldly men cannot depose the deputy elected by the Lord. God's angels fight for him, Richard says, and... If angels fight, weak men must fall, for heaven still guards the right. Still, it's possible Richard doesn't fully believe his own words. It's a question that changes very much from production to production. I've seen Richards for whom that has been his way of working over his remaining followers. Look, I know you still believe in the divine right of kings, so there's life in it, you know. Or it can sound like a man failing to persuade himself that actually he's in a religious world, that he is indeed between men and angels, and that angels will fight on his side. 
at which point it becomes a story about somebody's sort of terrible religious disappointment. So I think it's one of the things that, that we can't quite decide. Whatever confidence Richard has is shaken when he learns that his 12,000 Welsh soldiers have dispersed and joined Bolingbroke. All souls that will be safe fly from my side, for time hath set a blot upon my pride, he says. Omal urges him, remember who you are. And for a moment, Richard's self-assurance returns. I had forgot myself. Am I not king? Is not the king's name 20,000 names? Arm, arm, my name! But when he learns how many subjects have joined with Bolingbroke and that his most loyal followers have been executed, his tone starkly changes. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, he commands. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court. His last hope is that York could raise an army to defend him. But then he hears that York has yielded to Bolingbroke. Richard decides to retreat to Flint Castle and dismiss his remaining followers. Reversing his earlier image of himself as the son, he declares, Let them hence away from Richard's night to Bolingbroke's fair day. From outside Flint Castle, Bolingbroke sends a message of both submission and defiance. Pledging allegiance and true faith of heart, he promises to lay down my arms and power if his banishment is ended and his lands restored. If not, he says, I'll use the advantage of my power. Bolingbroke does have superior military power. But when Richard appears on the castle battlements, in performance often in a resplendent, awe-inspiring costume, Bolingbroke cries, See, see, King Richard doth himself appear as doth the blushing discontented son. And it's staged so beautifully, in symbolically, in the way in which Richard comes down from the upper level of the stage. At this point, he has no army. There are sort of six people standing around him who appear to be his entire team, up against Bolingbroke, who has the entire old nobility and a massive army. And yet, because Richard appears on the walls in full regalia, you know, they all stand around saying, looks he not like a king? He still looks like the king. Richard rebukes Bolingbroke and his army for defying their God-given sovereign. We are amazed, and thus long have we stood to watch the fearful bending of thy knee, because we thought ourselves thy lawful king. Northumberland says again that Bolingbroke desires only his rightful inheritance, and that he will be Richard's faithful subject if he is granted it. Richard agrees to restore Bolingbroke's estate. According to what Bolingbroke has said, it seems he should now submit to Richard, but instead Richard speaks only of submitting to him. Bolingbroke gets himself into a position where indeed he has the king captive, but at first Richard is clearly still king. The theatre audience can see it, all of Bolingbroke's followers can see it, and it's Richard himself who seems to rush on his own downfall. What must the king do now? Richard says. Must he submit? 
the king shall do it. Must he be deposed? The king shall be contented. He asks Northumberland bitterly, What says King Bolingbroke? Will his majesty give Richard leave to live till Richard die? Bolingbroke keeps to his same story. I come but for mine own. But Richard recognises, or insists, that another story is playing out. Your own is yours, and I am yours, and all. What you will have I'll give, and willing to. For do we must what force will have us do. Set on towards London, cousin, is it so? London was where a new king would be crowned. It also held the Tower of London, where political prisoners would be jailed and executed. We next see the Queen mourning Richard's losses in a garden, where the gardeners discuss how Richard will be deposed. In London, Bolingbroke hears that Richard has yielded him the crown. In God's name I'll ascend the royal throne, he says. But he is interrupted by the Bishop of Carlisle. He calls Bolingbroke a traitor and prophesies that civil war will tear England apart if the Lords agree to crown him. His speech moves Bolingbroke to summon Richard to court so he can hear the accusations that the people have made against him and make Bolingbroke's coronation appear more lawful. But the move doesn't quite work as Bolingbroke hoped. What Richard has lost in political power, he is determined to make up for in theatrical power. On entering, Richard immediately shames his opponents. I well remember these men. Did they not sometime cry, all hail to me? So Judas did to Christ. In Christian terms, he is comparing his treatment by the aggrieved nobles to the betrayal of the sinless Son of God. And how blasphemous is it? Are we supposed to think, oh yeah, indeed, the, the king is God's representative on earth, so he is a type of Christ. Or are we going to think, hang on, you know, he should be done for heresy. But all the iconography of, of kingship is indeed taken from Christology, and it enables him to make the most extreme rhetorical move when he accuses them all of being Judas. It's an electric moment. York prompts Richard to resign his crown to Bolingbroke. The way in which Richard carries out this command actually undermines Bolingbroke's legitimacy as ruler. Here, cousin, seize the crown, he says, emphasising how Bolingbroke obtained the throne by force. Here, cousin, on this side my hand, on that side thine. For a long moment, both men are holding the crown. Bolingbroke is just sort of dumbfounded and Northumberland is just furious and, and just doesn't get it any more than Bolingbroke does, that Richard's going to seize this opportunity to perform in front of an audience and play it for everything he's worth, uh, which he does so well. Bolingbroke urges, Are you contented to resign the crown? I know, no, I, replies Richard, for I must nothing be, therefore no, no, for I resign to thee. Thus Richard formally divests himself of his power. But the very formality and power of this ritual reinforces the sense that he is still the lawful king. 
With mine own tears I wash away my balm, with mine own hands I give away my crown. Long mayst thou live in Richard's seat to sit, and soon lie Richard in an earthy pit. He calls for a mirror to examine his face, and smashes the mirror to the ground. His public display of passion allows Richard to depart, in many productions, looking more like a religious martyr than a political offender. In fact, some of his former followers, including O'Mell, form a plot against the new King Henry IV. York, O'Mell's father, was sympathetic to Richard, but when he learns of the plot, he flies to the king to denounce his son as a traitor. York's wife, however, pleads for her son's life, much as the queen will plead for Richard. The thing the male characters try to reserve to themselves from whoever is in power is a notion of personal integrity and honour. The women have a sort of, they articulate a basic physical family loyalty. They don't want their children killed. They don't want their husbands killed. That's that's the main thing they're given to do in the play is, you know, whatever the whatever the politics are, you know, mortality is mortality. And, and we're the voice of potential bereavement or actual bereavement. Henry agrees to spare O'Mell's life. He began the play by condemning Mowbray as a traitor. But now, confronted with a traitor himself, he declares, I pardon him as God shall pardon me. The Queen begs to be allowed to stay with Richard, but he is taken now to prison alone. Stripped of everything that once defined him, he meditates on what he has become, concluding, Whate'er I be, nor I, nor any man, that but man is, with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased with being nothing. The last we see of Richard, he is completely alone in a cell, and suddenly there's sort of nothing left of him except this extraordinary voice, that fascinating meditation on nothing. At court, Sir Pierce of Exton hears King Henry say... Have I no friend will rid me of this living fear? Believing Henry means that he wants Richard killed, Exton comes to the prison with assassins. Richard kills two of his attackers, but Exton finally kills him. Richard gasps, Mount, mount, my soul, thy seat is up on high, whilst my gross flesh sinks downward, here to die. Henry is working to suppress other political enemies when Exton brings him Richard's coffined body. He reacts not with gladness, but guilt. Though I did wish him dead, I hate the murderer, love him murdered. Lords, I protest my soul is full of woe that blood should sprinkle me to make me grow. Richard is gone, and Henry is left to grapple with ongoing political tensions. And may be, as Richard himself once said, haunted by the ghosts he has deposed. The play moves through a very clear structure. Richard comes down, Bolingbroke goes up, and we're enabled to think about the consequences for each of them. In our next episode, we'll explore the political strategies that Bolingbroke uses to make his ascent, and how Richard's downfall as a politician becomes his triumph as a protagonist. <laughs>